Welcome to Changemakers with me, Katrina Oliphant, brought to you by Chrome Radio in association with the Monthly Barometer. This week's Changemaker is Jessica Smith, Nature Lead at the United Nations Environment Programme Finance Initiative based in Geneva. The initiative is a UN-convened network of banks, investors and insurers working together to accelerate sustainable development. As Nature Lead, Jessica is involved in pioneering work to develop collaborative partnerships between the global financial sector and indigenous and local communities. This means shifting the mainstream financial sector away from practices that are harming nature towards practices that support nature. Indigenous and local communities play an important role in this shift, and I began by asking Jessica to explain why. So currently, 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity is in territories, in terrestrial areas or inland waters, which are stewarded by Indigenous peoples, particularly recognized Indigenous peoples. A broader number is also stewarded by various local communities that may be described as tribes or others without the UN designation of being an Indigenous person. Also, 40% of our irrecoverable carbon is also stored in areas which are stewarded by Indigenous peoples. So the way that we think about nature and the need to protect nature needs a very different approach than dealing with the topic of climate, although, of course, they are interrelated and nature provides a major climate solution. In December 2019, the world came together and agreed the global biodiversity framework and also the need to close a $200 billion per year gap in financing nature and also bringing the benefits of nature towards those who have stewarded nature. So they have incentives and rewards for the work that they've been doing. In the global biodiversity framework, one of the targets mentions biodiversity offsets and credits. The idea of having credits for nature is very much inspired by the work that's already been undertaken in the voluntary carbon market and nature-based solutions. However, this is a very different topic. We partnered with the UN Development Program and the government of Sweden to convene the Biodiversity Credit Alliance to bring together market players, standard setters, and communities and Indigenous peoples to come together and say, how can we get this market off to a good start? Biodiversity credits are already in an incredible pace of development, but within the Biodiversity Credit Alliance, we've actually started with a discussion on how can these markets be geared to reward the stewards of nature. So one point is that a credit unit that defines what we actually are measuring and rewarding in this market is very important. And for Indigenous people who have been fighting often for hundreds of years, thousands of years to protect nature in their territories, a definition which includes the maintenance of nature is extremely important as compared to a definition which only includes the uplift on nature, which would reward already degraded areas and could possibly create unintended consequences. So the Biodiversity Credit Alliance is bringing together a lot of different partners, but has put the voice of Indigenous peoples and local communities very prominently through our community's advisory panel and also our first output, which is a discussion paper on how do we create just markets. I wanted to know how the Biodiversity Credit Alliance had gone about setting up the community's advisory panel and how the panel worked. We first of all reached out to the UN Permanent Forum for the Representation of Indigenous Issues. They have an existing structure in the UN system. They're one of three bodies in the UN that represents the voice of Indigenous peoples. 
They have an existing structure of seven sociocultural regions around the world who have various points in common in their Indigenous communities and existing systems to consult each other on issues that are emerging like biodiversity credits. We have worked with this permanent forum to identify participants for the community's advisory panel. We've also worked with the International Institute for Environment and Development, who have a 30-year track record working with communities on environment and development issues, so that we can round out also the expertise in the topics related to the carbon market and biodiversity management to create not only the geographic and cultural representation, but also the topical knowledge of these particular issues. The community's advisory panel is not a fixed membership at this point. We've gotten started and the members have identified their own co-chairs and who would be drafting their products, but we don't have anyone from the Arctic region yet. And we don't have anybody from Russian Indigenous people, which is quite a large number. So there are continuing gaps, but we are still at the start of this process. And as we go on, there will be further gaps, for example, grievance handling mechanisms, which are often used in certain types of large projects like multi-billion dollar infrastructure or energy projects, but they haven't necessarily been used in a scaled way very effectively. So we would be looking in the future, for example, for communities panel members who have legal backgrounds as well. I asked Jessica if she could give me examples of where the dialogue between Indigenous and local communities and the financial sector was already working well. I was also interested in what she thought were some of the challenges. Many of the positive examples that we are seeing are coming particularly from Canada and Aotearoa, New Zealand where there is a very strong governance framework for Indigenous peoples in the country and very established free, prior and informed consent. And in the case of New Zealand, they are also taking the perspective that Indigenous rights and Indigenous benefits are part and parcel of any kind of nature markets. Then the case of Southern Africa is an interesting one for me in the sense that many of the groups in Southern Africa who would be Bantu descendant would not be recognized as Indigenous peoples in the UN definition, but they would be identified as local communities. Many countries in Southern Africa have a variation of community-based natural resource management, and much of that is in what's called the wildlife economy, where you do have photographic safaris, elephants, rhino, and you would also in some cases have trophy hunting in certain countries, which creates a lot of financial income for local communities. Now, the community-based natural resource management system, most of those are on state-owned land where communities have resource rights. But because the land is not owned by the community, it creates a lot of difficulty accessing private finance in the sense that they don't have collateral. And many of the types of arrangements would require a de-risking mechanism and legal steps by government in order to enable them to access private finance. Namibia has trialed wildlife credits, which were a very interesting pilot, but not necessarily reaching the scale that is hoped for biodiversity credits. But I think what we can see in terms of each of these examples is that the enabling environment set by government in terms of resource rights, how communities have governance representation at various levels is extremely important in order to be able to set up the right conditions to be able to make use of a tool like biodiversity credits. This is particularly a challenge because a lot of the world's biodiversity is in the global south. 
And if there will be a market in biodiversity credits, there would need to be adequate safeguards in order for that to operate responsibly. In 2012, at the UN Conference on Sustainable Development, the UN Environment Programme Finance Initiative launched its Principles for Sustainable Insurance, a collaborative initiative between the UN and the insurance sector. There are now around 200 signatories, consisting of mainstream leaders in the insurance and reinsurance industry. Insurers have an important role to play in financing the protection of nature, as Jessica explained. We've recently released a paper called Nature Positive Insurance about these special aspects around insurers and how they can contribute to a nature positive future. Now, one of the challenges that we see is that the insurance industry is so strong at pricing risk. However, right now what's happening is areas that have natural disasters are chasing insurers out. So for example, if you live in a flood or fire risk zone, your home insurance may be at risk. I think another factor is that insurers are investors. They take the money that we pay in premiums and invest it, and that's part of their profit model. So we want to think about what are the ways that we can really engage insurers and actually think as a society, what is the role of insurance and how do we align the features, the mechanisms that are used in the insurance industry with society's goals? And again, this needs governments to really set the guardrails so that insurers don't simply look at these situations and move away. But we found a number of great examples, which I would consider lighthouses for what the insurance sector could be. One is the idea of parametric insurance or index-linked insurance, where a certain parameter will trigger the insurance payment. This has been used particularly in Mexico and now in Belize attached to the Belize debt swap, which trigger payments if coral reefs are damaged. But what is in the interest of governments, the client, and the insurer in this case is to actually invest in coral reef protection which would be cheaper than the payout in the case of damage. So this is an ideal example where everyone's interests can be aligned using parametric insurance. Another tool is the idea of human wildlife conflict insurance. So we are seeing pilots, particularly in Southern Africa and South Asia right now, with great backers like Munich Re, a mainstream reinsurer, who are looking at how do we ensure where communities live alongside dangerous wildlife. So if you live in a hut next to elephants, Number one, your crops are at risk, your family, particularly your children and elderly people who may have more difficulty getting out of the way of wildlife are also in danger. So there are needs to, first of all, ensure the damages. And second of all, find these prepayments, as in the case of coral reefs, where it is in the insurer's interest and in the community's interest to be able to pay for protection that avoids the consequence that triggers the payment. So we're finding exciting ways that we can rethink the idea of insurance and put it in line with society's interests. In terms of risk, the relationship between climate and nature impacts all parts of the global financial sector with which the UN Environment Programme Finance Initiative works. But if we can build partnerships between the mainstream finance sector and Indigenous and local communities, there are also significant opportunities. 
At Unipify, we work with three major segments of the financial sector. We work with banks, particularly commercial banks, more than 300 of whom have signed the Principles for Responsible Banking, which now represents more than half the world's banking assets. We work with around 220 insurers who are the mainstream of the insurance, representing a similar part of the insurance and reinsurance market. And we work with major asset owners and asset managers. Each of those have different connection points with nature. All of them are aware of climate, and most of them have or are considering setting climate-related targets. Many of them now understand the relationship between nature and climate on their portfolios. The idea of risk and physical risk is one that has taken hold, particularly in banking. Emerging market bank portfolios are most affected. So the World Bank did some great work last year, which showed that in the 70s of percentages, for example, for Mauritius, it was 73% of the bank's portfolio was directly exposed to nature-related risks. So we do see that in developed markets, the proportion of exposure of risk is lower. In the Dutch market, it was estimated around 37% only for biodiversity. It is estimated in the 50s or 60s of percents for nature risk more widely. At the same time, the World Economic Forum estimates that there is a $10 trillion annual opportunity from acting on nature opportunities and that 395 million new jobs could be created by 2030. So we are seeing the idea of nature opportunities more prominently on the agenda of financial institutions today. However, we work with a group of banks who are looking for investment opportunities in nature-based solutions, and they are not seeing a pipeline of viable bankable projects at this stage. And as I mentioned previously, the communities who are stewarding nature are often indigenous communities, local communities tending to be in remote or rural areas. We are not seeing that there is a strong connection between indigenous peoples and local communities and our mainstream finance sector today. However, this is not an unbridgeable gap. There are many enterprises and nature-based solutions that are possible to upscale with blended finance and with other market-based tools, which would close this gap and create more incentives for nature stewards and also create that pipeline of opportunities towards the 10 trillion that the World Economic Forum suggested would be available from nature-based solutions if we invest in them. So right now, what we're seeing globally is our economies are rewarding the destruction of nature. If we reimagine a world where our economies are able to reward nature's assets, the benefits that come from nature, I think what we would see is a great shift of capital from the global north to the global south. So someone stewarding a forest in Gabon would be potentially as wealthy as someone on Wall Street. So it's really a different way of thinking about value in our economies. Right now, our economies are not creating incentives that reward the champions of nature. We see Indigenous peoples and local communities having incredible success rates in biodiversity, in irrecoverable carbon that are in fact higher than the state protected area agencies that are actually set up for this purpose. The Indigenous territories, they may not necessarily say that this is the outcome that they are hoping for, but in fact, they are stewarding high levels of biodiversity, particularly in their food systems, which are unmatched anywhere around the world. 
Now, how do we bridge this with mainstream finance? I don't think we can underestimate the cultural gap, the geographic gap, the gap in language and others that is there right now. But if we want to make action on nature, we do need to bridge this gap and think about how do we create these rewards and incentives at the same time as we are trying to limit the finance towards harmful activities. One case that we're looking at in the voluntary carbon market is grievance handling and redress mechanisms. These have been implemented in some cases, and some of them are well reflected in standards for the carbon market. But all of them create a system where your grievance goes to the project proponent and the investor doesn't have visibility of that grievance or how it was resolved. Now, we think that this creates a risk for investors in this market because they have to rely on the project proponent to communicate risk. If I was an investor, I would want to have as much information about my investment as possible. So one of the discussions that's taking place within the Biodiversity Credit Alliance is how can we create governance systems that create the transparency for investors that avoids these risks? And can we create grievance handling redress that is visible in the market and where Indigenous peoples and local communities who are doing the work that we need done globally are actually rewarded and at a minimum not harmed. Because in fact, right now in the voluntary carbon market, we are seeing a lot of cases of harm, of displacement, of lack of access to resources. But we don't have transparency until we have exposés of particular incidents that are happening. This is really a baseline to make a market that is just and sustainable and rewards biodiversity's champions. In October 2022, the Convention on Biological Diversity held its 16th Conference of the Parties. Jessica told me how the Finance Initiative is partnering with the UN Development Programme's Biodiversity Finance Programme and helping 136 countries update their national biodiversity strategy and action plans. Now, for the first time, each of these plans is meant to have a biodiversity finance plan attached. We are bringing our private sector networks from UNIFI, from banks, insurers, and investors to engage in these national processes, particularly banks, because banks are very prominent in emerging markets, bring them into the processes, identifying how can we actually finance the goals and targets at the national level? What are the appropriate tools that are already available? Many countries are spending considerably more, not only on nature, but on health and education, on debt servicing before they can even think about nature and climate commitments. So the question of debt for nature conversions and increasingly the idea of maybe debt for climate related conversions as well is becoming very prominent. So we're working with our counterparts who have much bigger presence in countries, whereas our work with UNIFI is with the private finance sector to really face to face engage in countries to figure out how do we finance the goals and targets that we need to reach on nature. And it's urgent. We only have until 2030 to finance these goals and targets to bring our societies back in harmony with nature. We've actually exceeded six out of nine of the defined planetary boundaries and two more are about to be exceeded. So we're not only in a climate emergency, we're in a nature emergency, which is accelerating the climate emergency. So we do need to move extremely fast and we we need to make sure that the interests of the public sector and the private sector are aligned on this issue. Jessica Smith, Nature Lead at the United Nations Environment Programme Finance Initiative. 
That brings us to the end of this episode of Changemakers. My thanks to Jessica for joining us this week and thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about the business case for the global financial sector supporting Indigenous and locally-led initiatives, check out the Biodiversity Credit Alliance's recent discussion paper. It's called Communities and Nature Markets, Building Just Partnerships in Biodiversity Credits, and you can find it at www.biodiversitycreditalliance.org. For more on the work of the United Nations Environment Programme Finance Initiative, go to www.unepfi.org. Next week's changemaker is Hazel Gavigan, Director of Communications at Four Day Week Global, which is on a mission to create a million new years of free time globally. Join us to find out how you can work 80% of your week for 100% of your pay and be happier, healthier and more productive into the bargain. You've been listening to Changemakers with me, Katrina Oliphant, brought to you by Chrome Radio in association with The Monthly Barometer. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts.